I haven't had very clever titles for you these last couple weeks. This is just part three in a series within a series, The Church in Pictures. I really have looked forward to and am enjoying this part of our study. I hope it's been a benefit to you as well because I like pictures. I like images and I like to have them on the wall and I like to look at them wherever they might be. Um, There's an old saying that a picture is worth a thousand words, and often that proves true. There's something about an image and just beholding something with your eyes that speaks without having to use verbal communication. It will speak to your heart. It will speak to your mind. It will help you understand things that maybe you didn't understand uh, from just uh, reading or, or whatever the case may be, a flow of information. And so I hope it's been helpful and continues to be for these next couple weeks as we look at these pictures God has given us in his word to help us know what it means to be the church, to function as the church. Um, What we've been looking at the last two Sundays was one of the primary pictures, and I spent a little extra time on it because it's so prevalent in God's Word, and it's that picture of the church as family. And one of the verses we didn't mention that I wanted to bring up here in our review is from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in a place that Paul quotes 2 Samuel. And what he shows is that the, the church is exactly this. This is how God has called us to understand our relationship to him and to each other. 2 Corinthians 6.18, we read, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. What a blessing. What just an amazing thing to comprehend there. That's how God speaks to us. That's how he interacts with us. That's how he defines our relationship with him and with one another. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And then here's one to memorize. We've mentioned this one the last two Sundays, 1 John 4, 16. And so we know, and this key word, rely upon the love God has for us. Think of how that's a critical component of what it means to be a child, that with all the uncertainties and the dangers that children will face in the world, all the stressors, all the fears, one of the things they should not have to wonder about, one of the insecurities they should not have to battle is whether they can rely on the love of a father and mother at home. Now, tragically, we know this is not the case for literal millions and millions of children in the world, and yet we hold this up as God's standard, his ideal, and if nothing else, this is how he invites us to see him, because this is how he will see those who are his. It's how we are to see one another. We rely upon that. We can't rely on much in this world perfectly, but we can rely on this, that he is a father who loves his children perfectly. You can turn to John 15 if you'd like in your Bibles. We'll get there in a moment just to prepare you. But a couple more comments of review here. Um, One of the main ideas from last week on the screen here, because of this concept of the family, this picture, we learned that we are to look at each other as family needing encouraged toward holiness, not as objects to be used for selfish gain, which is our sinful human tendency to look at people as things to manipulate or uh, objects to be used for our own gain or pleasure. That's not how God calls his family to see one another. We looked at 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, where we get uh, this admonition about how to act as his family. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Families should not be such that they can't talk to each other about issues in the home. There's a right way to do this, and if we love each other, we will do this. We're to do it the right way. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, And in case anyone is foggy on what he means by that, he qualifies with absolute purity. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, 
Have you ever found in your life how easy it is to get in the habit of not gathering regularly with your brothers and sisters in Christ? You miss once, you miss a few times before you know it. There's a million reasons, and gathering as the body of Christ becomes the exception in your life, not the rule, very much to our own detriment, spiritually and otherwise. And then finally, Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. We should have a basic goodwill toward the whole world. But then God unabashedly admonishes us, especially to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Do good especially to those within your family who you will spend eternity with. And so our concluding thought was this. If we are truly of the company of those who will live forever with the Lord, we need to love each other with pure intentions here and now. Okay, we are going to look at two more pictures of the church that God gives us today to help us understand these important things about our identity, how we relate to each other, and how we understand our relationship with him. John 15 is an incredible chapter. In fact, that entire group of chapters that makes up that address from Jesus on his last night on earth is, is one of the most poignant and timeless passages in all of scripture that we just could go back to over and over again, which is one of the reasons I've been upset with myself that I haven't been able to make it on Thursday nights as much as I'd like. David's going through this, these chapters with the men right now. Oh, it's, it's such an incredible section in the gospel of John. Um, I also was told in the lobby between services that this is a passage the ladies have been spending time on as well on their new, their new series. So it's neat that we're all kind of looking at same, uh, some of the same passages here in God's Word. John 15, 1 through 5, follow along in your Bible or on the screen if, if you don't have your Bible with you. Jesus says this, or first this, this other slide, sorry, you probably have that one up there already. The church as the branches and the vine. That's the picture we're going to look at. The church as branches on the vine. John 15, I am the true vine, Jesus said, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And by that, of course, he means nothing of real significance, spiritually, eternally, or otherwise. Most of my life, as I've heard these verses, they came across very encouraging to me. They were verses that seemed comforting and sweet. But the deeper you dig into this passage, you realize it's fairly sobering and has some uh, pretty frightening implications. And so, pertaining to the picture of the church as branches on the vine, the first thing I want to say about this passage is that it is a perilous thing when churches, whether it's due to their apparent success as you look at them from the outside looking in, it's a perilous thing whether due to that or great financial blessing perhaps, or maybe record-breaking attendance, or maybe a church's dive into pop-cultural theological trends. It is a perilous thing when churches begin to develop a sense of self-importance, as though they in themselves are something quite special. How absolutely desperate then is our need 
to guard against any trace of pride in us in, as individuals or as a corporate body that would boast in anything but the cross or the grace poured out in Christ. Because as you look at a ministry, human measures of apparent success do not necessarily equal divine blessing. It does not necessarily mean you have God's favor or that he's with you. Not at all. In fact, the devil himself, who scripture refers to as a ruler of this present age, a temporary one, obviously, under God's sovereignty, and he has, he's a being who has actual authority in this world, but it's limited, and it's for a limited time. But he actually owns much of the material wealth of this world. Now, of course, he has no power or authority to overthrow the Lord, because in an absolute sense, we read very clearly that the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. We know this. But God, in his sovereignty, in his infinite wisdom, he chose to allow evil to run its course in some ways. Once evil had been chosen by Adam and Eve in the garden. Originally, we know Adam and Eve were commissioned by God to subdue the earth, to rule over it, to be his stewards, to be his representatives to creation, his vice regents, you could say, upon the earth. But what happened? They gave away to the enemy what God had given to them. They handed over their position, their authority, and God actually allowed them to do that for a purpose. God had given them freedom. Those were the first words out of God's mouth to his creation. He puts them in the garden. He says, you are free. That's what he said. You're free to eat of any tree you choose. Don't eat of that one, but you're free. And then we know what happened, and God has allowed things to take a certain course in this present age ever since then. And this is not out of his control. It's all under his watchful, careful eye. And these things unfold never in a way that would prevent those who are his from coming to him eventually and living with him forever. And yet the fact remains that much of the material wealth of this world is temporarily at Satan's disposal. And if this sounds outlandish or borderline heretical, just consider when Jesus went out into the wilderness at the commencement of his ministry and subjected himself to the elements, to incredible thirst and hunger for one thing, but then also to the direct temptations of the evil one, Consider what we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to, the, to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. And then this most interesting statement, it has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Of course, Jesus is the champion of champions. And he's going to absolutely crush the enemy. And the enemy doesn't stand a chance, which is delightful to behold, and it kind of gets us excited because this is our Savior. This is the Son of God. He's the one who goes before us, and he answers, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus drops the hammer. And yet, what I'm getting at here with this idea of the wealth of the world and branches on the vine and being impressed with our own selves, is that we face a peculiar challenge in modern American Christianity, and that is we're living in the age of mega-ministries. It's kind of like the, the goal to really have arrived in the church world or in the gospel work. 
And what's very sad is that in many cases, not all cases, there are some huge ministries God has raised up that I think are just incredible forces for the gospel, and they just keep growing and growing, and that's wonderful. So this is certainly not always the case, but in many cases, the, this growth into mega ministry, this model is a business model more than a New Testament gospel ministry model. It's what the church has fashioned itself after and tried to employ its strategies through. And often this results in millions and millions of dollars flowing through various channels. And what we're getting at here is that should never automatically make us assume that a church getting to such a place equals divine favor and blessing. Consider the Mormon church as an example. It's undeniable they are a global financial superpower. And yet if you do some historical investigation just less than a couple hundred years ago into how that all came to be, there was formed this false gospel that was entirely changed and subverted the true gospel of the New Testament. Worse yet, in very recent times, there are some ministries that traditionally have been mainline Orthodox Christian denominations who are getting dangerously close to the same thing, creating false gospels that accommodate mega success more than genuine gospel ministry and conversion. And if you'll notice some of the trends of this movement, what you'll see is that here in our country, we've developed what have become referred to almost as celebrity pastors, who now every year will offer these huge conferences. But instead of being termed gospel-centered conferences, what are they called? They're called leadership conferences. And they feature speakers who are not just leaders of huge ministries, but they've begun to pull in speakers now who are secular business owners, people who aren't even professing Christians to be their keynote speakers about how to to find success in ministry. These are people who don't even, by their own admission, don't even know the gospel or serve the Lord. And yet there's some of the, the big name, recognizable face speakers of these conferences. And so you have literally tens of thousands of people following these ministries, mesmerized by the charisma and the magnetism of the leaders. And yet, what is often the content that you will find at such conferences? Often, you'll basically get a message that says, hey, if you want to get where we're at, aka, if you want to be awesome like we're awesome, if you want to be super successful like us, listen here. Pay your registration, read these books. Here are your seven secrets to success. Here's the tools. Here's the tricks of the trade that you need to learn. Here's how to influence the masses. Here's how to put on a certain kind of presentation that will have them eating out of your hand. Here's how to drastically and quickly improve your bottom line. What you don't often see at these sorts of events is keynote speakers stepping up, opening their Bibles, expounding a passage from God's word, demonstrating a sense of humble reverence under the weight of God's word and under his glory. Instead, what you often see is human exuberance and people drawn to that like a magnet. Like, hey, we love that kind of personality. We love that charisma. We love how eccentric this person is and how they carry themselves and they have very likable personalities and they have self-confidence and they have super catchy quips and platitudes. That's often what these huge conferences have taken shape to look as. And thousands and thousands and thousands every year sign up for it and they buy the books and they go through the programs. But do you know what a mega conference looked like in ancient times in the Bible? You know what shape it took on in the history of God's people? It looked like this. 
God's people gathering in one place as a huge assembly to hear his word proclaimed, sometimes for hours on end. Bring out the book. Read the word which we've forgotten. Rend your hearts. They would often tear their clothes as a symbol of their deep contrition and repentance over their sin. They would bow. They'd confess. That's what these huge conferences looked like. They would cry out to the living God for his mercy and salvation as they renewed their covenant relationship with him. Leaders of God's church in ancient times led the people in humility and repentance and a deep love for the Lord and reverence for his word and passion for the gospel. And so as we look at this picture of branches on the vine and Jesus warning how, how easily you can become fruitless and be cut off by the gardener, we see that the American Christian church is in a dangerous place today. And we should be a little bit on edge about that. We should be a little concerned, not worried. We're commanded not to worry. That becomes a sin issue. I don't know if concern is just a um, worry with some Christian gloss slapped on it, but I think concern can be godly. I think it's a decision not to worry, but also to care, to be concerned in a way. We should be a little concerned about the temptation to become branches that get so big and so strong on their own that they begin fancying themselves the tree. Isn't that what can happen? Can't branches sometimes get so big that they're basically like a tree unto themselves, just sticking out in a different direction? But if you go past the impressive surface features of such a sizable branch, if you get down to the DNA, you find that branches are still branches. They aren't roots. They aren't necessarily the trunk. Even if a branch were to grow to become two feet in diameter, which a tree could do, it's impressive. For the present discussion, what, what might that symbolize? Even if perhaps there's this ministry that is 20,000 strong and millions and millions of dollars of cash flow, even if that branch grows to that size, if you saw it off and get an excavator and dig a huge hole and stick that thing in the ground, is it going to just thrive and grow and produce fruit? No, it's going to be like days probably before what? You begin to notice it's been severed from its life source and it's dying inside because the little tokens, the little symbols that there's life within are just these beautiful little green leaves or fruit, right? And that's the first thing that's going to begin to show signs of withering and dying. It's the visible evidence, the fruit, the produce, the leaves. Its life, its vitality in that case will diminish rapidly, and in a relatively short time, it will show that it's either dead or dying inside because branches cannot live apart from the trunk or the vine or the roots. And what is the vine? Who is the root? It's Jesus. It's the gospel. Separate yourself from him, from his word, from the spirit, and you will surely, eventually, shrivel up and die. There will be no genuinely good, lasting fruit on your branches. I think this is timely for us. We, we brought up a few of these things back in October in our first couple Sundays here, but I just want to say it's been wonderful, I think. This is just me personally, being in this place. I don't know about you. I still get excited every time I walk in here. It just excites me. And I hope we are genuinely grateful to God for what seems to be his presence with us and his hand of blessing upon us. And I hope we are burdened in our prayers, in our souls, to see a genuine move of God in our day, in our community. I mean, can you imagine that? God can do it. We can be a part of that. 
How amazing to think that God would move mightily in our day, in our community, and would let us be a part of that. We should be excited about that possibility. We should pray and work toward it. But we read passages like this, and we have to remember, but how careful we must be not to lose our way, not to ever become a branch that becomes impressed with itself or fancies itself the tree or the vine. In such a case, if that were to ever happen, I can tell you this, we would be much better served dwindling down and meeting in a garage with 15 truly gospel-passionate believers than to be hundreds strong in a beautiful place and yet be branches who are not truly alive and connected to the vine spiritually. I want to I be careful to say I, I don't think that's happening here. I don't. I see encouraging signs of spiritual fruit and spiritual life everywhere I look. It's been awesome to see numerous days of the week, so many of the ladies gathering and, and digging so deeply into God's word. The men gathering in the evening and digging deep into the gospel. The youth gathering weekly, wrestling with deep truths of the word. We see our kids every Sunday march out of here and back where, they're, where they are back there, what they're doing is they're hiding God's word in their heart while they're there and they're being loved on and, and discipled. I see many of you every Sunday morning, you walk in with true gospel joy on your faith, on your face, in your faith. People loving and serving each other. I can't tell you how that blesses my heart. What I'm getting at though is we can never, not for a moment, take that for granted because Jesus didn't take it for granted in his admonition to his body, to his people. That's why he warned us. That's why we have to be so very careful to guard our hearts and to guard what he entrusts. See again in this passage, John 15, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. Again, this, this always just, just sounds so sweet and wonderful, but as you actually read it, what's he saying? God's going to cut off branches that don't bear fruit. Gone. Thrown away. And yet, if there's evidence of true spiritual life, he's going to prune that so that it produces even more fruit. That's a pretty awesome promise. He says, he assures his disciples, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He makes us clean. We can't make ourselves clean by the word he speaks, by his gospel, by him, himself, his own righteousness. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. And then this, this conditional statement, which those always make us a little nervous, or they should. Like, oh, God actually has some expectations of his people. We actually need to be mindful of these things. And if, if we're not very careful, the if turns into the then. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus gave us this picture of the vine and the branches so that we as his church would understand something important about our nature and the nature of the world and the nature of our relationship to him, the vine. What we see is that he is the fountainhead of all life. He's the source. He's vitality. Apart from him, there is no life, which means if he is not our greatest love in our heart, genuinely, in our affection, if he's not our greatest love as a body, if the gospel is not our all-consuming passion, we will slowly move further from him and closer to the world. That's what will happen. If we stop being faithful to his word, if we stop loving and serving one another, we will become like bitter fruit, dead on the vine. 
And the seriousness of this message, I hope, will settle in on us as we consider that this is not just hypothetical theological discourse. This is spiritual life and death, like literally, here and now, in our present historical moment. This battle is being waged even as we speak. Have you, have you kept up in, in world church news or national church news these last few years at all? Have you seen, just as one example, how the United Methodist denomination has been absolutely torn apart? They're hemorrhaging because the leaders of what used to be one of the world's leading gospel-centered denominations, the leaders decided they would rather crawl into bed with the culture than remain in holy covenant with the Savior through the gospel. The leaders of this mainline denomination representing millions of professing believers, they abandoned 2,000 years worth of right teaching regarding human sexuality just to cower before an evil world and to kiss the hand of Caesar and beg for acceptance from the ruler of the power of the air. And what did that do? It absolutely tore them apart from the inside. And praise God, thousands and thousands loved him and loved his word and wouldn't stand for it. And it was really interesting how this became a global vote. And the American Methodist movement did not anticipate where their brothers and sisters in Africa and other countries were at who showed up in mass to vote. And they actually took a stand for what was right and maintained that standard in the denomination. But then the powers that be just could not handle that. They kept fighting until eventually the whole thing began to fracture once again. And what's happened now is hundreds and even thousands of congregations have, despite the deep family loyalty, the deep history, the deep devotion to a movement and a denominational family that was so dear to them, they said, we can't do it. We're, we're going to have to leave. We have to go be a church under a different name in a different way. They paid that price. Knowing that the vine they were attached to was shriveling, they reattached to the true vine. They took a stand. And I believe God will bless those congregations mightily for what they've done. And I bet many of those ministries are thriving in spite of the conflict and the division. But for those who abandon him, what's the result? They might, they might have this brief moment of feeling united in their convictions, but there will be no Holy Spirit power with them anymore. And what happens when the Holy Spirit leaves a place? How long can life endure? There will cease to be gospel transformation. The only thing that will eventually be left are skeletons in the closet. The end result, we see this in buildings all across our world. The end result is great, empty, echoey spaces hauntingly silent, that used to be filled with the bustle and the stir of gospel life, spiritual vitality, life abiding in the vine. Hungry souls gathering weekly to feast on the bread of life. It's not just the UMC. This thing, same thing has happened in the PCUSA. The same thing has happened in certain Lutheran congregations, although not all. The same thing has happened in all kinds of movements and denominations. Friends, the same thing could happen to us. We're not special in that way. We're no different than any other congregation or group of people in that way should we take our eyes off of the gospel and off of the one who is the vine. And we have to be smart enough, I know, hopefully to see that doesn't happen just all at once out of the blue. Like a bombing of a foreign nation that surprises and shocks and devastates a country. No, this is more like this tiny little leak in a roof that didn't seem like a huge deal at the time. Like, oh, it's just a drip. It's just a little stain. It's not a huge concern that happens. We just had weird weather this year. I'll 
kind of put it out of my mind. We'll get up in there and investigate some other day, and we'll kind of try to work on the, work on the house some other time. And then it goes undetected in places you don't readily see, and all of a sudden, after several years, or who knows how long, the entire roof caves in in one moment because of this tiny, slow, little dripping and deterioration that didn't seem like a really big deal at the time. That's how compromise is. It's sneaky. It's deceptive. It's subtle. And so, brothers and sisters, we must abide in the vine, or we too can be cut off. We have to cling to Jesus, or we too could have our lampstand removed from its place. Do you see how important this picture Jesus gives to the church to understand themselves as branches on the vine? It's critical. I hope we see the weightiness of this. It's a holy weightiness. Secondly for today, somewhat related but nuanced in its own way, is the church, the picture of a church is a field of crops. This also is an important image that God gives to us for us to understand ourselves and who we are as his people, who we are as his body. The church as a field of crops. You can turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians 3. We'll get there in just a moment. What we see is this picture of the church as a field where seeds are planted and watered and cultivated, and there's eventually a harvest. There are plants that spring up. Not all of them are good, though. In some ways, this harkens to similar themes from the last picture, similar dangers. I would say again that it's become a clear and present danger in a modern American Christianity to begin to think that crop production is far more important than crop quality. And to apply that to the church, what I mean is there's been a movement to try to convince us that instead of the quality of the the spiritual produce, what we are to focus on are human strategies and human personalities and to note how those things really can affect crop production. But this is simply not the case. It's not how God has set it up. Despite the wisdom of man, the purported wisdom of man, this is not the wisdom of God. What we see is that only one strategy really can ever effectively produce a a genuinely spiritual harvest. Only one strategy. And I'll just spoil it for you. His name is God. He's the Holy Spirit. Let's look in 1 Corinthians 3 here, verse 1. This is another another wonderful point here that Paul addresses this body of believers with the truth. It's confrontational. It's, It's a little hard for them to hear. I'm sure it's stung. But if we love each other, we'll speak truth to each other. Lovingly, of course. But we won't hide from issues and run from issues. We, if we love each other, we'll deal with them. He does that with this church that's kind of a big mess. And yet he starts off with words of comfort. He calls them brothers and sisters. Not foreigners who've abandoned the Savior, but he speaks affectionately and with terms of family to them, despite their mess. Brothers and sisters, that's a good start then it takes a turn for the more difficult. I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now, we love infants. They're precious. They're beautiful. That's not what Paul means. He means you're adults, but you're acting like little spiritual babies. You're in diapers. You're on the milk. You should be having a steak by now, theologically. 
I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you still are not ready. You still are worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants. That's a humbling one, isn't it? Especially for those in ministry. Only servants. That's it. Through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, meaning Paul preached the truth to them. They received the seeds of life, the word of the gospel. And then someone else came along and followed up and began to disciple and expound on the word of truth, expound on the gospel. That was Apollos. He watered the seed. And yet, what is so clear that Paul says, what's this picture God is giving us of the church? But God has been making it grow. He's the only one that can do that. God is the only one. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But in the day and age of magnetic personality and celebrity image, we make it everything. And yet God says it's nothing. We want to gather behind a particular person because we like how they do things. We like how they are and, and what they represent. And we're with them. We're going to follow their movement, their, their version of the gospel ministry. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will be each rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service. What's Paul's main point here? Again, this is kind of a harsh reality in our pride, but his point is this. Human vessels through whom ministry happens are the least significant party in the process of salvation and spiritual growth. That's good for us to know and to hear, isn't it? Human vessels through whom ministry happens are the least significant party in the process of spiritual growth and salvation. And yet, how often today do we see this tendency? Do we see men and women and their particular leadership style or their personal revelations that they claim God is giving them? The words from the Lord or their finely tuned strategies to have effective ministry or their particular personality profile, or their psychological profile. They took all these tests. How often do we see these things made out to be a big deal that can really move or shake a ministry? And what does God have to say about that to knock us down plenty of pegs? You think that really is what matters in the eternal grand scheme of the work of the gospel? When it comes to ministry, when it comes to the church, when it comes to the gospel doing what the gospel does, changing hearts and lives, when it comes to all that, Who's the only one that really matters? It's the Lord God, the Holy Spirit. Only he can produce growth. Yeah, we can plant seeds. We can speak the words of truth. We can plant the gospel. We can learn to serve one another well, cultivating the soil of hearts, tilling it up so hopefully it receives the seed better. We can even follow up with those whom we've served. We can reach out. We can pray for. We can encourage. We can... You know, someone's made a commitment or prayed a prayer or, or expressed faith. We can follow up and, and try to encourage them and teach them. This is like planting and watering. But as far as actual regeneration, as far as actual spiritual movement from death to life, actual change from the inside out, actual transformation of a heart, that is a miracle that can only be done by God himself through the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's the only way. And 
amazing. It's amazing that he lets us, who are pretty unimpressive earthen vessels, be used, used in that, useful in that. He's chosen to do that. He's chosen human beings as a method, as a vehicle to carry his gospel to the world. That's a delight, and it's something we should revel in and enjoy and thank him for. But all the real work, it's him. Where's the wisdom of man when it comes to salvation? What does it count for? The philosophies and the strategies, all our cleverness, it counts literally for nothing. Where are the philosophers of this age? Guaranteeing you that if you'll look like this and talk like that and implement these seven strategies, you'll have, we guarantee it, probably 50% more customer increase in the seats next week or financial funneling through your organization. 1 Corinthians 1.20, where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, his word does give us principles for how we can, I think, do ministry well and care about details and try to serve him with our very best efforts. I'm not saying none of that matters, that we shouldn't be thoughtful about how we do worship time or prayer time or music or Bible studies or fellowship dinners or any of that. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about or think about those details. He addresses things in his word that I think help focus our thinking on how to do those ministries well, but it's this obsession with the world's wisdom and strategies and corporate strategy and all this that's concerning. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, Paul says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. He was not the guy that huge ministries would have picked to be on their little Facebook promo video. Paul was not the guy. They would have found someone who had a particular college degree and had a super magnetic personality to be their spokesman and their poster boy. And this was not Paul. And yet look at the fruit of Paul's ministry. He was effective as a minister because through him, a humble earthen vessel, there could be a demonstration of the Spirit's power, not of his own power, not of his own influence or wisdom. Why is that? What's the purpose? So that your faith, which is really important because God saves us by grace through faith, it's how we get from here to there eternally, so that your faith doesn't rest on humans. It rests on God, on his spirit, on his power. Amazingly, God chose to use humble, weak earthen vessels like ourselves to minister to each other and to speak these truths. That's humbling. But again, brothers and sisters, we are the least important ones in the process of real spiritual change. And so as it relates to our understanding of ourselves as the church, as a field, what we see is that conviction in the conscience, salvation, repentance, change, sanctification, these aren't produced by man. These are produced by God through his spirit. In a very profound and significant way, this is what it means to be the true church, a place where God can put his own power on display and receive the glory where spiritual life is springing up, eternal life that only God can be credited for. But in false churches, the ship often will run on human effort and strategy. The business operates according to human wisdom and principles and systems. Success or failure depends on having the right people with the right personality and leadership styles in the mix. That's what success will depend upon. In short, it begins to rest on human wisdom, not on the power of the Spirit of God. Paul would correct the church's thinking on this if we would let him. That's why he says again, starting at verse 5 this time in 1 Corinthians 3, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? 
only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their, lab- their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. And then you'll notice last time and this time I put an ellipsis there, the dot, dot, dot. Why is that? It's to build up to this magnificent statement. What's the very next part? In case you wondered if, if we were forcing a picture on this that wasn't there, 1 Corinthians 3.9, what does he say? You are God's field. That's the church. You're his field. Earth is the place where the church is prepared for heaven. It's a field that's being prepared for harvest. The harvest is the transition from the earthly age, the present age of human history, to the eternal age. Here and now, until Christ returns, seeds are being planted. The gospel is being preached in every corner of the world, and God is raising up. He's beginning to sprout out of the dirt of the human heart. Life, little plants that are shooting up all over the world in every tribe, nation, and tongue. These crops will continue to grow until one of two things happens. Either believers eventually pass away and spiritually they're with the Lord while their body awaits physical, real resurrection. Or believers will be alive in the day that Christ returns and they'll be caught up to meet him and as he comes to rule forever among his people. But we have to realize the focus of our time while we're in the field must be spent sowing seeds and feeding and watering the crops. In this field, there will be really good, genuine crops growing up, symbolized in Scripture as a particular crop. Anybody remember what that is? What's the good crop that represents the church? The wheat. Nourishing. It was a life source to them. This image might lose a little of its beauty and luster living in the age of gluten intolerance, perhaps, but back then it was, it was across the board pretty great. But what God shows us in this picture of the church as the field is something else is going to grow up alongside the wheat. There will be what were called tares. This was a noxious plant. It looked like wheat at first, and you couldn't tell that it was not the real thing and not life-producing and not nourishing until it got to a certain point closer, closer to the harvest when the heads of grain would sprout and the tares, the counterfeit, would often be, be growing up there next to the real thing. This was not good growth, and this, this is in the field of the church is what the Bible is showing us. Very interesting. Now, there's, there's a, a little bit of nuance that has to happen here to make sure we don't miscommunicate certain truths here. Let me say right off the bat that, yes, there are going to be occasions in church life where a person actually has to be removed from fellowship, put out of the fellowship of the body. And why, why would that happen? It's because a professing believer is living openly and blatantly in unconfessed, unrepented sin. And they're bringing shame and reproach on the body and on the gospel and on the name of Christ. And brothers and sisters who care enough about each other would approach this person and say, hey, this, this is an issue and, and we need to talk about it. There needs to be repentance and healing and reconciliation. And if, if a person won't listen to one, then more should be brought with them. And if they won't listen to those witnesses, it, it's eventually brought before the whole church. And Paul talks of those times. There were, there were times in this Corinthian church where there was horrible sexual perversion and it was, it was right out in the open and no one was saying or doing anything about it. He says, you have to put this brother out of your fellowship, but still even then it was for the purpose that they might be stricken 
eventually and repent and their soul be saved on the day of judgment. So there will be that obligation in the body. There have been a couple occasions we've had to face some not so pleasant things like that in our history of our church here. But we also have to see, on the other hand, regarding this picture of the church as a field, that our job in the church is not to walk the rows of the field constantly and focus all of our time and mental energy and emotion trying to determine for ourselves who is a believer, a real one, and who's not. And this can be such a temptation even on a Sunday morning. You walk into a room like this with all these faces and you might see someone you did not expect to be at church and like, I know this person. They, sh- they probably shouldn't be here. I know what they're really like. I've seen them in contexts in the community or in my past. Or we see people who put on a good face, we think, and yet inside we have suspicions. Like, I, I've got my doubts about them. I don't think they really know or, or love the Lord or walk with him. And people begin to think in these terms as they walk in instead of thinking of God and I'm here to worship you, Lord, and to receive your word. Instead, they're looking around and making judgments in their heart. You realize that Jesus himself let Judas remain in the company of the apostles and in the work of the ministry up until the very last moment? It wasn't until the culmination of his earthly ministry that Jesus put the sickle to the base of the plant that was Judas's life, removing him from the field of apostleship. Similarly, while we do have parameters in place as a body, that's important, we have confessions handed down to us, we have doctrinal statements We have testimonies as a person associates themselves with the body at baptism. We have baptism itself. We have instructions about communion. We have many events of fellowshipping with one another to get to know one another. We have parameters, but we really don't have a godlike ability to discern who in the depth of their heart truly belongs to the field, the body, and who doesn't. We don't always have that. We must know in reading the New Testament that sometimes Those who looked the most genuine and passed all the tests turned out to be the most ferocious wolves in sheep's clothing. Which means we can never put our hope in our own appraisal of men or women. We cannot put our hope in even our strategies or our fences always. We cannot put our hope in what our eyes can see. We can only put our hope in God who has taken upon himself the ultimate task of wielding the winnowing fork, and separating at the very end of all things the sheep from the goats. I always have to apologize to Kimberly. I know how much you love goats, and it's a, I know it's a negative image here in the New Testament. The wheat from the tares. We cannot allow ourselves to become obsessed about trying to take on the godlike task of perfecting the field here and now. We know for sure who's in and out when God intends to do that himself at the end of the age. To conclude today, let's turn to Matthew 13, if you would, if you have your Bible, or you can follow along on the screen here. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Another, another uh, sample of the church pictured as a field. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. 
But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Do we always obey this in the context of a a local body? Or do we take upon ourselves the exact opposite role that God has handed to us of, no, I'm, I'm going to be the one to determine in my heart who the wheat and who the tares are. This parable forces us to focus on right things, the most important things. And churches, if they're not careful, can fall into this trap of trying to usurp God's winnowing ministry from him. Again, of course we need church discipline. Of course, that's a real thing in Scripture. Of course we need to confront open, unrepented of sin in the presence of brothers and sisters, confessing believers. There is a reason God gives us instructions on that in the New Testament. There is a way for brothers and sisters to hold one another accountable. There are proper protocols to follow. When you feel that a brother or sister has sinned against you or when you feel you've sinned against them, The obligation is on both parties whenever it settles in, the realization settles in on them. But still, churches can quite quickly go astray when they become obsessed with the concept of wanting to determine by their own measures and wisdom who is really in and who is really out. Because what God sees, some of us don't see. Which is to say, there might be a person that's like an absolute train wreck at this season of their lives. All kinds of issues, maybe substance-related, maybe relationally, maybe mental illness related, all kinds of problems. There might be messes in the church that are are big messes. And despite all appearances, there might be real spiritual work that God is doing in the hearts of those who their life is like a train about to, to go off the tracks. They might be at a point walking into a place like this where they're torn up by the Holy Spirit and they're walking in and symbolically tearing their clothes because of it and crying out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they might be just like that criminal on the cross that Jesus says, you're with me. You're with me. I see your heart. I know your motive. I see what you want despite what you have. There are some who might look that way that we'd be tempted to dismiss and say this this place would be better off if they maybe were stopped at the door. And there are probably certainly others in any given body of believers who are people of great reputation, of high repute, who look nice, who carry themselves well, who speak well, who look polished and righteous, who say all the right things at all the right times around the right people. They keep up appearances. They have good rapport with men and women. They make sure that everyone thinks the right things about them. They know the the right Christian catchphrases. They even know perhaps how to expound passages of the Bible. They know how to pray prayers that would move a heart. They might get involved in all kinds of ministries and service projects, and yet despite all appearances, they might be more sons of hell than anybody else, just like some of the Pharisees 
that they were, they were the ones. They were the, if, they, if, no, if anybody was in, they were in. They had all the right boxes checked. They knew the word. They ministered. They had the leadership. They had the influence. And yet Jesus, at times, would look at certain of them and say, your father's of the devil, or your, your father is the devil himself. Absolutely spiritually dead inside. So we have to be so careful, don't we, about the work of the gospel and trusting eternal judgment to the only one who truly judges justly. And so again, verse 27, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this. The servant asked him, do you want, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. What happens sometimes when a church follows this rabbit trail and they begin to become obsessed with with doing this work of God for him. They make a big mess and they damage genuine believers who will then be maybe uprooted out of the gospel work that's happening there. They'll be damaged in their faith. Let, let both grow together until the harvest is his counsel. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. His own will be gathered to him forever. They will be with him forever. The real concern is make sure you're speaking the truth and giving opportunity for those who are his to hear his voice and to be called and to be nourished. Father, thank you for your word as we uh, contemplate these images, these pictures that you give us. We realize this is not just esoteric doctrine. It's not just these airy theological discourses that don't seem to have substance. Lord, this is life and death for us. This is real, and so I pray that you'd allow these pictures to move our hearts, to keep focused as a ministry, as a body, to be about your business. You're the landowner, Lord. You're the one who owns the farm. You're the one who instructs us how to plant and water, and you're the one who brings the harvest. You're the one who harvests. Lord, help us to take care, to be looking primarily at our own hearts, to be looking within and asking you what issues there need addressed and brought to light instead of to always be looking at others, making judgments that aren't ours to make. And yet, Lord, there are occasions where you've called us to be courageous and loving and to bring issues up that need brought up within the family life of the body. So help us not to use either of these images as an excuse to neglect the other. But Lord, may we be sensitive to your spirit and seek your wisdom on how to navigate these very difficult things. We love you, Lord, and it's our deep hope and prayer that we simply are the wheat, that we are saved. Lord, if there's a, a heart left in this room who's been unmoved by the gospel, God, help them in this moment miraculously by your spirit to be desperate to find the answer, to know for sure that there's good spiritual fruit in their lives, that they're abiding in the vine, that they have life in you. If they're afraid that they're on the outside, if they're still harboring rebellion against you, rejecting you, trying to be God of their own life, Lord, would you strike their conscience so that they could cry out for mercy and find new life in you? May this be a holy moment for any heart like that in this room. By your mercy and your grace, may it be so. Lord, we thank you and we love you. We ask this all in your name. Amen.